You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, it's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. I'm beginning in chapter 14. Or you can take the Pew Bible there or a device. But in the Pew Bible, you can go to page 927. 927 there in the Pew Bible. Well, we've been looking at some of the hard sayings of Jesus, where Jesus is reminding us what it looks like to follow him. That once you become a believer, you become a disciple. Now, here are the things and the ways that disciples live and how, what it means to follow Christ. And I think one reason why Jesus utilizes some of these jarring and shocking and kind of, huh, sayings is because one of the great sicknesses, in, I think in all areas, but especially here in the Bible Belt, one of our great sicknesses is complacency. Complacency when it comes to following Christ. We get comfortable, we go through our normal routines, maybe go to church on Sunday, if nothing more desirable pops up, go to work, go to school, maybe small group, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And the hard sayings of Jesus, when we get into this just automaton kind of mode, the hard sayings of Jesus kind of serve as a, as a symbol crash for when we're dozing off and going through the motions. And today, Jesus looks at the crowd following him. He looks right at us today and says something jarring. You have to hate your loved ones to be my disciple. You have to hate your loved ones to be my disciple. Now, I didn't do this in the first service, and I wish I would have. The timing of this passage was planned months ago, and so we're going to talk about Jesus isn't talking about actual hate. We're going to talk about that more in a second. But we need to condemn all kinds of hatred in all places, and especially in a kind of neo-Nazi white supremacist hate that's happening in our country. Um, and I hope you can give a hearty amen to that. And if you cannot, you need to seriously meet your Jewish Christ face to face. Um, so let's pray to Christ today. Ask him to help us learn what it means to love and to be his disciples. And we talked about last week, loving our enemies, forgiving 70 times seven. There's so much that we as believers, God is arming us for, for such a time as this, um, to be a place of radical love that unites all races, all skins, all backgrounds. And let's ask Jesus to help us now. So let's, let's pray and then we'll read the text and we'll, we'll go into the sermon. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us now? We are all sinners in need of your mercy and grace. And would you help us, Lord? Would you be with the church in Charlottesville? Would you help them to be profound and prophetic witnesses of your uniting power in the blood of your son? that he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility so that now in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But we, are, we can be one in Christ and we are all made in your image. So help us to love, help our country, help our leaders, help the police, help our president. Uh, Lord, we need your divine grace and mercy poured out. 
Help us now today, Lord. Help us to live as your disciples, to not hate when we're hated, even though our hate, oh, it feels justified at times. But Lord, help us. It's in your mighty name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. Luke 14. Luke 14, Jesus sees that there's this massive crowd and he's not content with people being comfortable with a big crowd. So let's look and see what Jesus says about this massive crowd, beginning in verse 25. And as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and he wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, Every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. You may be seated. I have a confession to make. Something I've lied about more times, probably as many times as you have lied about it. I'm a hypocrite, and you're a hypocrite too. I know we've all lied about many things in our lives, and I've lied about this one, and I know you have as well. That when you sign up for something online, and it says, click here if you've read (laughs) and agree to the terms and conditions. If you didn't read it and you checked it, I don't know what you call yourself. <laughs> we all check it. No one reads it. And I, every time I'm like, man, should I go and read this iTunes agreement? I'm a Christian. I'm like, I forget it. There's grace abounds and you just check it and you move on. <laughs> terms and conditions apply, but we don't read them. Listen, what Jesus does with this crowd, he sees this master's crowd following him and he knows they don't understand the terms and conditions of really being my disciple. They think just following up, just following and just showing up that they're in. Just being in the crowd doesn't mean you are in. And just like today, a lot of people are showing up at services on Sundays thinking they are a part of the kingdom of heaven just by their mere attendance. 
So what Jesus does with this crowd is he lays out terms of discipleship. Now listen, he doesn't lay out terms of salvation. Salvation is free and it is by grace alone. And sanctification, growth in Christ is by grace alone. But discipleship is a process and it is a costly one. Learning to walk with Jesus, there are sacrifices, there are demands. Salvation is come as you are. Discipleship is count the cost. Crucify your flesh. Forgive 70 times seven. Forgive, love, bear your cross. And here the condition, the man he makes today, if you want to follow me, go ahead and hate everyone you love. And if not, you can't be my disciple. This has got to be at the top of the hard sayings. And what Jesus is doing here is he is helping us recover discipleship. Now look at verse 26 again. So the great crowds are with him. Jesus turns to them and he says two things here we got to key in on. And here's the first one. If anyone comes to me, comes to me. Think about what Jesus is just doing with that phrase. He is reorienting our entire thoughts about what Christianity actually is. Come to me. Christianity, friends, isn't just coming to the teachings of Jesus. It's not just adopting the moral outlines of the Apostle Paul. You don't come to Christianity just because its book fits your life better than Islam's book. You don't come to Christianity just because you like this book and this model of services better than you like Mormonism's multiple books and ways and services. Christianity isn't just about adopting the words of Christ. It is going to Christ himself. Comes to me. It's going to Jesus for Jesus and who he is. Not just so, some people come to church on Sundays and come to Jesus just so he can fix your marriage, get a little shot of religion, and then you leave a tip in the offering basket and go back to doing your own thing. Or people come to Jesus just so they can get a blessing, so they can get a miracle, so they can hear some new teachings. Or just so people come to church so they can just feel good about being religious. Or people come to church and come around Jesus just so they can give their kids some religion that they didn't get growing up. But listen, Jesus doesn't want that for anyone in this room. He doesn't want a mere churchianity because the essential directive of Christianity is joining Jesus, being received into fellowship with Jesus, being discipled by Jesus, being united to Jesus, being saved by Jesus and walking with Jesus. That faith in Jesus, that he really is the eternal son of God, that he really is the Messiah, that he isn't some diluted diet version of God, but he actually is God in flesh. And that he took on that human body to die for my sins, paying for the penalty. And that he didn't stay dead, but that he rose, his heart turned back on, on Easter Monday, Easter Sunday. Sorry, got my weekend mess up there. (laughs) And going to this risen Christ and believing in him and joining him. So what Jesus is doing here, even when he says, if anyone who comes to me, He's really subtly getting into the back of our minds and hearts and asking, have you come to me or just my teachings? Have you come to me or just my miracles? Have you you joined me or are you just like joining my church? Because friends, the greatest need in all of our lives right now is Jesus himself. 
right now, this day, we need an encounter with the risen Christ. That's Christianity. And then and only then can we really live as disciples of Christ. That is the object of Christianity. That is the object of discipleship, Jesus himself. And when he establishes that, then he lays out some of the terms and conditions. Look at verse 26. So if anyone comes to me and then does not, and here are all the conditions, hate father, mother, wife, child, brother, sister, and yes, even his own life. And here it is. He cannot be my disciple. So that cannot be my disciple. These are terms and conditions. And he doubles down on the hard saying, if you don't do this, you don't hate your loved ones, you can't be my disciple. And he repeats it two more times. Verse 27, if you don't bear your own cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, if you don't renounce all his possessions, you cannot be my disciple. So over and over and over, Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to be my disciple. And if you don't do it, you can't be my disciple. And here's what we must remember. We really need to recover the word disciple. Jesus highlights it over and over and over and over. My disciple, my disciple, my disciple. Christianity is being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and all of life, that we are in an apprenticeship with the Lord Jesus on how to live for the glory of God, empowered by the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't want any of us to be confused about the conditions of discipleship. Christian is a fine word. We call ourselves Christians. It's a fine word. But I think we need to recover the word disciple too. That I'm a, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Because the word Christian has gotten bloated. It's gotten barnacled. So you see an a, a old boat, it's got all this stuff growing on it. An old pier, it's got all this junk on the side, all these barnacles and weird bugs and all this stuff. The word Christian has gotten a lot of barnacles on it. There were even people this weekend in Charlottesville would say, oh, I'm a Christian. Do you know what we were called even before we were called Christians? We were called followers of the way because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It wasn't until later in the book of Acts when we be called, we're called Christians. There's a lot of people, hopefully no one in this room, that they would check Christian on a poll or a survey, but they wouldn't consider themselves a disciple of Jesus. They don't live as disciples of Jesus. To be a disciple means that this person that I'm a, I'm a disciple under, they get my first loyalty. They get my allegiance. What he says, I believe. What he says, I do. They get top billing in my life. I am their understudy. This means Jesus can't be second. He can't just be tacked onto our lives. He can't be in the background. That's the force of this hard saying. If we want to be his disciples, he shows us the intensity of it, the demands. Is it hate? Look at verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, it's even his own life. You don't hate these people. You cannot be my disciple. Why phrase it this way? Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? And the Ten Commandments teach us, honor your father and mother. 
Jesus just taught us last week to love your enemies. So I'm to love my enemies and I'm supposed to hate my loved ones. He's told us to love our neighbors. He's taught us to love one another. What's happening here? I can tell you what's not happening here. Jesus isn't cranky. He hadn't had his coffee yet. It's not that kind of situation. He's not misspeaking. He's not overreaching. Jesus is being intentionally intense. He speaks this way because he knows we can just kind of go through the motions. And then he says this phrase, he says it so intensely that it would make us go, huh, what? That when we're kind of dozing off, he says something so, whoa, that it makes, whoa, did you hear, did he, what did he just say? Did I hear what I think I heard? Did he really say that? Jesus is saying, so we'll perk up and go, okay, whoa. What are you actually talking about? Now, you've heard it described in many different ways. It means to, that you love this person so much that it looks like you hate these other people. I mean, I love the Houston Rockets. I'm sure a lot of you know that. And my love for the Rockets, it may look like I hate the Golden State Warriors. And I do. So not a great example. <laughs> But I love Warriors fans. I know Winston's back there and his family. So I love Warriors fans. And there's other, I've seen other, you know, struggling people in our body who are Warriors fans. <laughs> but because I love the Rockets so much, other people think, oh, you must like last year's playoffs. Oh, he, you must hate the Spurs. I'm like, no, I'm pulling for the Spurs. Just because I love the Rockets so much, doesn't mean I, I mean, it may look like I hate the Spurs, but I don't. But, uh, and because of my great passion for steak, I mean, I love steak. Just people joke that I probably hate chicken. We're at people's house or going out to eat to a restaurant. Like, hey, sorry, I, I, I know you're over for dinner, but I don't have any steak. I'm sorry. I'm like, yeah, that is sorry, but, but whatever. <laughs> chicken, I, I'll eat it. I, I like it, especially if it's fried. Fish, especially if it's fried. So yeah, I love steak, but it's, I mean, I just, I like fish and chicken okay, but I just don't like it as much. This Jewish idiom that, that Jesus uses it is a way of saying love less. It's a phrase. So of course, Jesus isn't telling us hate those you love. He's not telling us to hate anyone at all. Jesus, he's actually doing something more challenging than what we think. He's not just saying, I want you to love your mother, father, wife, child, siblings. I want you to love them less than me. What Jesus is actually doing here is even more difficult. He's saying, I want you to love me more than everyone else. I want you to love me more than you love your wife. I want you to love me more than you love your children. I want you to love me more than you love even your own life. And if you can't do that, you can't be my disciple. If you don't love them less than me, you can't be my disciple. If you won't come to me first, you can't be my disciple. That Jesus gets our first allegiance over parents, over spouse, over your children, over all. Now, this is a shocking thing for someone to say and teach, isn't it? That someone would have the audacity to say, I want you to love me more than your children, your grandchildren, and your wife and your husband. To make such demands, what does this teach us about Jesus? It doesn't teach us that he's just a merely good teacher. It teaches us that he must be God to make such demands. 
to be a disciple of Jesus, to really follow the crucified and risen Christ means he's getting into the depths of our relationships. And he says, everything needs to be renovated. We need a complete overhaul and renovation and it's time to organize and reprioritize your loves in your life. That's why he even says later, if you won't renounce all of your possessions, you can't be my disciple. If you want to hold on to all of your things like the rich young ruler and think that you can just, all all these other things in my life are non-negotiable, but I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus says, I won't be tacked onto your life. You will be tacked onto mine. This is why being a Christian is not inviting Jesus into your life. To be a Christian is really to be invited into his life. Anyone who comes to me. It's not him coming to us. It's us going to him. So when Jesus says, love me more than your parents, have allegiance to him over them, he's telling his disciples that the wants, the wishes, and even the whims of your parents lose to me and lose to my call and lose to my word and they lose to my way. You see this with Peter. That he, there he is fishing. Jesus walks by and says, why don't you drop that net? Come and follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And Peter drops his net. Now, don't read that and think, oh, Peter was just, you know, fishing there, sitting on the dock of the bay. He's like, oh, okay, cool. I can take a break. He gave up his livelihood. Not only did he give up his livelihood, he gave up the business that his father had been building, his grandfather had been building generations upon generations that would be handed down and trusted to Peter. And Peter says, I'm, I am abandoning that. I am leaving my inheritance behind. I'm leaving my 401k behind. I am leaving my blue chip bonds behind because the wants of Christ win over the wants and wishes of my parents over my family. There are people who in our church who have become disciples of Christ. They believe in Jesus and their families are suspicious. And then listen, if you grew up in a Christian home, these are some things that maybe we just don't understand the tensions here. That there are people in our body who have become disciples of Christ and their parents look at them with suspicion. Are you joining a cult? What are you talking about? Eating skin and drinking blood on Sundays. Why are, you worried? Why are you reading this Bible all the time now? Are you, t- are you serious? You really think there's a God? How come you're not dating like everyone else? I mean, what, why are you living that way? What's wrong with you? And especially when disciples and their families have other religious backgrounds and tell them, you cannot be a Christian and still be a part of our family. I have seen it happen in Tomball and there's no, it happens all around the world. And even among Christian homes, Someone feels the call to foreign missions. Moving to another country, giving up the American lifestyle, want to make Jesus known where he is not yet known. And their parents and their friends don't get it. This is the text to say, Jesus wins. I even met with a college student who wanted to go to the nations and to serve the Lord overseas. And his mom said, no, she's a Christian. And she's actually the missions director of another church. You're going to love Christ more. Even if it's your spouse. When the wants and wishes and whims of family collide with those of Jesus, who wins in your life? When the wants and wishes and whims 
of your family collide with the call and demands and words of Christ, who wins? Jesus is saying, it better be me or you cannot be my disciple. Even if it's in your little nuclear family. Family idolatry is one of the biggest idolatries in our community. People treating their families as though they, your families and your children and their schedules and their sports and their hobbies, that these are the little gods that we worship. People treating their families by their time and commitments and priorities and passions as more important than Jesus. Family is important. There is no doubt. But Jesus is more important. We love our families best when we love Jesus first. Even when my daughter asked me this Sunday, what are you preaching on? I said, well, can't wait till you hear this. <laughs> you got to hate me. And I had to tell her, do you hear what I'm telling you? She's like, uh, what? Like, Jesus says, I said, Ivy, that Jesus is telling me I need to love him more than I love you. And he died for my sins. He's the eternal God. And he's, Jesus is telling you, love me more than you love your papa. And Ivy, I want you to love Jesus more than you love me. We love our families best when we love Jesus first because we're pointing them to eternity and we're pointing them to the most awesome person in the universe when we point them to Jesus. But when kids sports wins out, kids hobbies win out over Jesus, we're, show, we're teaching them Jesus is actually more boring than that little ball you hit and that little ball you kick. That's American religion and not worshiping a Jewish Christ. We're telling them sports or hobbies or weekends at the beach or just having family time at home, that's more exciting and meaningful than our great God and Savior. When we let the wants and whims and wishes of weekly schedules of our families overrun our discipleship with Christ, it's deadly. One thing I love about Jesus in this passage he doesn't care about our personal space. This is all very personal. Family. What happens in our homes, our extended family. This is like one of the most like guarded things, especially us as Southern Americans, that we just kind of, it's our family. It's how we run things, how we do things. It's kind of our call. Jesus says, not to me. He invades one of the most personal spaces in our life, and he doesn't give a rip about our personal space. He really never does throughout the Gospels. He approaches a woman at the well who's had a lot of, she's got a past. He enters right in and says, yeah, I know you don't have a husband. And the guy you're with right now is not your husband either, but I want to I offer you some help, some hope. Jesus enters into our life, our family dynamics, and he doesn't tiptoe. But he says, I want you to look at your heart, look at your loves, look at your time, look at your thoughts. And who's clocking in at the top? Do I love Jesus? Beloved, just think about the list of these relationships that Jesus mentions here and the uniqueness of each one. Mother, father, spouse. What Jesus is doing here by saying, come to me and then even love me. And he uses these examples of these relationships. He is saying, I want your allegiance and I want your affections. I want to be exalted, but I also want your emotions. 
I'm your Lord, but I also want your love. You got to see that. Because let's, let's look at the first one, 26. Does not hate, love less his own father and mother. Father and mother. Just think about the uniqueness of that relationship. The love you have for your parents. Jesus says that respect, that affection. I mean, my daughter, she loves telling my wife and I that she loves us. Oliver, we kind of got to poke it out of him. But Ivy is just there all the time. She's just, she's just the sweetest. She's like, I love you. See you in the morning. I love you so much. Good night. I love you. She just loves to say she loves us. Jesus enters in and says, have that for me. Love me greater than that parent dynamic. Hate his own father, mother, wife, your spouse, that unique relationship with the only other person on the planet. That kind of love you have for your spouse of just enjoying being together, that deep affection, that really deep intimacy. Jesus enters in and says, that relationship, I want you to have that towards me and more. When you're able to look into your spouse's eyes and just say, I love you. Jesus says, I want you to love me more than that. Your children, the tender attention, the sacrifices we make. My goodness, the sacrifices we make for our kids. The time we give them, how much we talk to them, how much we cater to them, how much we you know, bend over backwards for them and care about them and, and worry about them and tell them all the time, I'll, I'll do anything for you. Jesus says that tender affection, that sacrifice, that time, those thoughts have that for me and more. Love me more than your children. I mean, think about how much we just love to brag on our kids. Everyone that has children, you just love to talk about your kids. I mean, Ivy's been playing soccer for a few years now, and she's been mainly on defense, has not been getting a lot of goals. And so this season, we said, all right, this is your last game. It's time. You're going. So let's get it. Let's get a goal this last game. She's like, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to try. I'm like, no, you're going to get it. You're going to get this goal. It's going to happen. And she was working really hard. She stole the ball from this kid that was kind of slow. And she went around <laughs> and boom, kicked it in. Yeah, I'm screaming. I'm going nuts. You did it. Well, before the game, I tried to pump her up. Don't go for one. Let's get two. You can get two. And then later, later on in the game, she's going, boom, she got the second one. Oh, I'm going bananas upstairs. Is it this indoor soccer thing? I mean, it's Texas in August. It's got to be indoor. I'm going crazy. And she's looking at me. I'm giving her thumbs up and all of our little hand signals we've made up. And then I see her trying again. She's trying to steal the ball again from this kid. And as she's trying, the other kid, you know, just kind of trying to push her away, pops her in the nose. Yeah. And <laughs> I notice she's touching her nose a lot. And she's looking, and then she runs over to her coach. I'm like, she's got a bloody nose. So I run downstairs, go meet her. She's got blood running down her face. And it's, we take her to the men's bathroom. I'm like, just stare at the sink. Don't look anywhere else. And, and she smiles. There's blood all in her teeth. And she's like, oh, I'm like, just rinse it out. I'm shoving tissues up her nose and we're going to get it done. Don't worry, blood on her jersey. And there's like 15 minutes left. And I said, okay, I think it's done. She said, I'm done? I said, no, no, no. Your team doesn't have enough players. You got to get back out there. 
She's like, you're right. She rips those things and let's, let's go. Natalie and I were so proud of her. I said, we're going to go buy you some Bluebell two-step. Let's go do this. I mean, I was so proud of her. Her team got killed, but it didn't matter. I mean, she got her goals. See, parents, we love to brag on our kids. Jesus is entering in saying, do you love to brag on me? Do you love to brag on your Lord? Do you mind if I brag about Jesus for a second? I mean, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And yet he loves me. He's never too busy for me. I mean, my Jesus walked on water in a raging storm when everyone else is in need of depends. And Jesus acts like it's no big deal. Jesus talks to this guy who was born with a shriveled arm and hand, paralyzed. Jesus walks up to him and says, why don't you stretch that bad boy out? And immediately, the Lord corrects his broken muscle cells. Jesus is so kind to us. Even when we're at our lowest, he loves us and invites us to himself. I mean, Jesus knows every secret sin and thought in my heart, and yet he loves me still. And he's not ashamed to call me his brother. And that even when I wanted nothing to do with Jesus, when you wanted nothing to do with him, Jesus said, I want something to do with you. I want to save you. That even when I forget to ask Jesus for help, he doesn't sit back and spite and go, let's see how this works. He helps me anyways, because he loves me. And Jesus really did let Roman soldiers drive iron spikes into his body for me and my sins. And then he became a cold corpse in a tomb, but he refused to stay that way. And even when he was dead, Jesus says before his death, I have authority to take my life back up again. Jesus uncorpses himself, rises from the dead and shows us we can have everlasting life with him. And he is sitting at the right hand of the father and he invites sinners like us to go to him and find salvation. That's my Jesus. I love to brag on him. Do you brag on your Lord? I love my wife and I love my parents and love my kids and my family, my sister, but there's no greater name than Jesus. And you can't afford the alternative. Do you know that? Disciples must know the cost and the cross. Jesus gives these two, as we're closing, Jesus gives these two quick burst parables here. One of a guy who is gonna build a tower, but he can't finish it, but he thought he could afford it. He thought he had it all lined up. He thought he was ready, but he really wasn't able to finish it. Jesus is saying, look, he's saying to the crowd, some of you just want to follow me, but you don't get it. You don't get what it really costs to follow me. You don't get my demands. Just like a guy who's going to build a tower and he wants the press. He wants the pats on the back. He wants the, the uh, publicity because new construction is exciting to everyone. Just ask Pastor Kevin. This guy knows about all the developments happening in the greater Houston area. It's amazing. New development excites everyone. So he's going to build a tower, but he can't finish it because he didn't count the cost. 
But then Jesus talks about a king. And he's going to go into battle with another king. 10,000 soldiers versus 20,000 soldiers. Jesus says, but this guy's not foolish. He's going to take his 10,000 versus 20,000. He's going to get demolished. So he sends a delegation to get terms of peace. So what's Jesus doing with these two parables? He's saying to the crowd, are you ready to follow me? Do you know what it's going to cost to follow me? By faith, make the choice. And then he's also saying with the king illustration, can you afford not to follow me? Because the invasion is coming. Because the wrath is coming. So while there is still time, ask yourself, can I afford not to follow Christ? And accept the terms of peace my father has offered. And my cross and in my death and in my life and in my empty tomb, accept the terms of peace. Can you afford it? Are you ready? You're going to have to die to your ways. By faith, follow me. And if, ask yourself, can you afford not to? Run the numbers. My kingdom is coming. His will will be done. So while there's time, enter in to my kingdom. Jesus even says, it's going to be so costly. You're going to have to hate your own life. Hate father, mother, wife, children, spouse, brother, sister. And yes, even his own life. If you don't do that, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus even says, you got to give up your own wishes and give up your own wants and your own whims, not just everyone else's, but yours too, and surrender them all to me. And if not, he says, it's like impure ancient salt. Salt back then was not as pure as it is today. Back then, it could get really diluted, really nasty. And he says, it's so bad, it's not even fit for the manure pile. That's not a sentence we use a lot. Oh, don't put that in the manure pile. It'll ruin it. This kind of Christianity that doesn't count the cost, doesn't care, oh, it shows up, doesn't really follow Jesus. Jesus, the manure pile is too ritzy for that kind of living. He says, it's time to bear your own cross. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus tells each and every one of us right now, don't think that discipleship is just showing up on Sundays, just reading your Bible when it's comfortable and taking some Instagram pictures with your coffee and all that stuff. He says, discipleship is a death march. Pick up your cross and follow me. Discipleship with Jesus is a death march. It is the death of wanting to do things your own way. It is dying to self. It's dying to the wants of others. It's dying to the demands of the ways of this world and it's dying to the ways of the Bible Belt. It is dying to this world and dying with Christ. Being tacked on to the cross with Christ. When you see someone carrying a cross in the first century, there's one thing we often forget. When you see someone bearing their cross, here's, here's what we forget about them. That person that's bearing a cross, they're under arrest. They're under arrest. They aren't calling any shots in their life anymore. Their authority and their autonomy is gone. It's done. They are now under another authority. To bear our cross and to be his disciple is a way of saying, I am arrested with Christ, and I am arrested to Christ. I'm not calling the shots in my life anymore. 
My life is not even my own. I've been bought with a price and I've surrendered to Christ. Have you? And are you bearing your own cross? It's a really interesting phrase, bear your own cross, because at this stage in the Gospels, you can just tell Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. So why would he say, I mean, he's not going to be crucified till the end. So why is he saying bear your own cross to a crowd when he hasn't bore his yet? Well, some scholars think that this phrase, bear your own cross, pick up your own cross, it was what the zealots would say. And the zealots were a small group in the Roman Empire there in Israel. They wanted to, they were insurrectionists. They were rebels saying, let's get Rome out of our country. Let's get them out. Let's rise up, rise up, you zealots. And let's go, let's kick Rome out. And one of their battle cries, one of their, one of their just kind of themes was, join the zealots and bear your own cross. Why? Because Rome will crucify all insurrectionists. Rome will crucify all rebels against Rome. So they're saying, join us, but no, we're dead men walking. Just pick up your own cross already. Join the cause, bear your own cross. So Jesus snatches this phrase, one they would hear as they're recruiting. And Jesus says, I'm recruiting you too, but I'm not recruiting you to overthrow Rome. I'm recruiting you for the kingdom of heaven. I'm recruiting you to be an insurrectionist against Satan against the ways of this world. So pick up your cross and follow me. Follow me for the glory of God. Die to your ways, die to self and be a disciple of Christ to be an insurrectionist and a rebel against the ways of this world. That's why even now when so much hate is happening in our country, we're gonna have to pick up crosses and be insurrectionists, be rebels against racism and be rebels against hate, rebels against satanic activity, just like Jesus was and is. He picks up his cross, dies for our sins, pays for them to give us new life. And if you want to be a disciple, we must die. Jesus doesn't want anyone in the crowd and this crowd to be confused what it will mean to follow him. And by his mercy and grace, he will empower us to love him, to bear our cross with him. Salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. And this is what it costs. Christ first. Terms and conditions apply. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.